Damn, Brick, you look hella handsome today. Thank you very much. Okay, I'm down to, down to roll. What's up, everyone? Welcome back to another episode of Zero X Research. If you're listening to this podcast, there's a good chance that, like Dan and I, you believe the future of finance is on the blockchain. And we're excited that London is becoming a global hub for blockchain innovation and institutional adoption of digital assets. That's why we're pumped to host the 2024 Digital Asset Summit in London this March. Don't miss your chance to get ahead of the curve. Later in this episode, we'll tell you how you can save 20% off on your ticket. All right, everyone, welcome back to another episode of Zero X Research. I'm joined today by Matt Ren and Brick to bring you guys another analyst episode. Uh, we're recording this on January 2nd. So happy new year, everyone. Hope you enjoyed the holidays, took some time off, touched some grass, got away from the screens because we are at the start of a bull market and things are about to get fun, but very, very busy. So uh, guys, thanks for joining me today. We got a lot of a lot uh, lined up on the slate to jam on. Uh, a couple of good things. Maybe we start this with a news segment round and then we'll get into hot seat, cool throne. Uh, let's start with the avalanche announcement that the foundation is going to be, uh, essentially the foundation is longing meme coins for whatever that's worth. So they put out a tweet announcement early in the middle of last week that reads a portion of it reads the avalanche foundation intends to start using culture catalyst, which is this program that, that they have within the foundation to recognize and encourage the culture and funds symbolized by meme coins by purchasing select avalanche based meme coins to create a collection. So they d- took a lot of backlash from this, unsurprisingly, from crypto Twitter. Uh, first and foremost, crypto Twitter will hate on you for doing anything and everything. Uh, but this one may or may not have been deserved. So some viewed this as like a sign of de- desperation and an attempt to continue being relevant. Uh, others were like, oh, no, this is a great idea. Uh, the signs of being a thought leader and doing things people haven't done before. Um, you know, if you put this in retro or fit this into the kind of a few of the other PR mishaps that Avalanche has had earlier this year. You know, they even openly recognized that the whole Stars Arena event uh, was a bit of a disaster. And for those that don't know, uh, Stars Arena was like a, essentially a friend tech clone, uh, but built on Avalanche. And the foundation kind of came out, foundation and core members of the team came out and really supported this team and kind of doubled down after a few exploits and it continually got exploited. Uh, and it's really just a bit of a PR disaster. Um, but net net, I think, that this is a on the meme coin announcement it's definitely a bit strange i don't know if i necessarily want my uh my core founders really promoting meme coins i mean yes they're doing great things and yes they're focused on things other than meme coins but like i don't know that kind of just feels like this dark side of crypto you just have to let exist and almost like you don't acknowledge it exists in a lot of ways um i saw a I can't remember who or what it was, but basically, is this institutional investor, uh, and he was just ranting about how much he hates meme coins because it makes him feel like you know this industry is a joke. And when he goes and talks to professional investors, like it's always this thing he has to try to you know talk his way out of. And I definitely get that sentiment, uh, but at the same time, I, I think it's just gambling, and gambling is a humongous industry. Um, but we don't definitely don't talk about it as gambling. You know, we talk about it as trading, and I think that's like a huge distinction that really needs to get made over the long run. Uh, but for now, um, it is very interesting to see the foundation kind of come out and, and make this announcement. Uh, definitely made a splash, if nothing less. But I'm curious if you guys have any thoughts on the Avalanche Foundation supporting uh, the meme coin adoption on their chain. I think to some extent, meme coins have this, you know, 
I hate to say this, but they almost have this like baseball card like tendency where you could see how long term like maybe some mean coins stick around. It's like a historical thing where it's, you know, it was the, something that was originally created on Avalanche. If Avalanche continues its success and becomes a, a predominant L1 in the crypto ecosystem, like maybe these OG meme coins that really helped build community and that became kind of like a, you know, a, a, a way of showing off that you're like a big part of the community or whatever, like maybe they'll continue to accrue. Uh, interest over time. I don't think you can look at them like an investment, maybe like a collectible, if that, um, you know, at the end of the day, I guess we have seen some meme coins like Bonk go out and create actual products that intend to drive fundamental revenue back to the token in some way. So like for all we know, you know, cock or whatever it might be could go ahead and do that. I actually think there's a good talk is a, is, a, is a hot meme coin on Solana. I feel like we just need to clarify that. Sorry, Matt, continue. On Avalanche, not Solana. Oh, sorry. Sorry. I said, you said Bonk. Put Solana in my head. Good call. Cock is the predominant new meme coin on Avalanche. Thank you, Ren. Yeah, up some 20x in a month. It's spelled C-O-Q, so don't worry. There's nothing inappropriate about it. Um, it's cock inu, I-N-U, so whatever, maybe that. Let's continue. There's a chance that these meme coins could like continue see, see success and interest in the long term in the same way that like any speculative market of something that doesn't actually have value continues to hold up. Uh, like we see saw this per, very predominantly in COVID with like a lot of a lot of these collectible items. But at the same time, like I do see the point of, you know, you don't necessarily want your foundation that's supposed to be building out the ecosystem to for that to be their main pri primary goal, I guess I could see, you know, it's cool. You're bootstrapping a community of meme people engaging, you know, on Twitter and maybe in your forums and whatnot. So like there's some value there, but at the end of the day, like, yeah, we probably, they, you know what they do though. They do also go make deals with big TradFi institutions and stuff. So I can't knock the Avalanche Foundation. I think they do a great job. Uh, but yeah, it was an interesting decision to say the least. I think at this point, Avalanche should really lean into the institutional narrative since that's kind of what they've been going for. And actually, I feel like have seen a decent amount of success in the past year leaning into that institutional subnet narrative and along of the validator tokenomics rehaul, whether that's coming along or not. I feel like they should just focus on that. You know, their name was plastered on that JP Morgan uh, Onyx Layer Zero sort of like testing thing. And that was one of the uh, very like, prominent use case which made sense for avalanche subnets and i don't know like yeah i, I want to say buying mean coins feels a bit desperate like avalanche DeFi is pretty dead you've seen a lot of cases where DeFi founders on avalanche moved on to other chains most notably being trader joe who started on avalanche and eventually migrated to arbitrum and they're going to launch something new on mantle um and obviously i think People will have other concerns. At some point, Avalanche Foundation is probably going to buy a meme coin that's going to rug and it's going to look horribly on them, just like the Stars Arena thing. Um, obviously, there's probably going to be insider trading fears too. Like, it's not hard to, if you're on the Avalanche Foundation team, buy a meme coin before the foundation buys it and sends it like 500%. So, yeah, I'm not a fan. I think meme coins have a place within like each of their ecosystems, but the foundation buying it, like, I don't think that's a good look. Yeah, my first reaction to this was kind of, or you guys nailed it pretty much with your takes, but yeah, my first reaction was um, getting the vibe of Avalanche being a boomer who wants to like join the rest of the party with the younger people and like kind of forces themselves <laughs> into the whole thing. And they had a great um, kind of organic uh, narrative going on with the CEO uh, Q token. Um but now I don't know. It kind of ruined the vibe for me. But 
we'll see what happens. Yeah, I like the call about working with like JP Morgan and really focusing on like institutional subnet adoption. I think they had they've had a lot of focus on that for a long time. I don't think that's changed one bit. Uh, so it's honestly kind of hard. It feels like to do both ends of the spectrum so hard, right? Like an institutional KYC subnet on on one side, and the other side is you know a, a meme coin dubbed cocked you. Like I don't. It's hard to do both. Uh, like it's you kind of got to pick a lane and go all in in some regard. But I don't know if you really like memes are culture. I think NFTs last cycle proved that, uh, and meme coins are really just the same thing as you know a, a 10k PFP in a lot of different ways. Um, so I, I don't hate it. I don't love it. It just kind of is, in my opinion. Uh, but yeah, I, I, I don't think they should be shocked at the backlash they got on Twitter. But, you know, if, if they're supporting their community and that's what you know, the goal of the culture catalyst probably is to support what the community is doing. If that's what the community is doing, then that's kind of what you got to support ultimately. So that's kind of the way I'm looking at it. Um, gotta, go ahead, Matt. You got to keep in mind the possibility that they have information that we don't do. So like. What if this is, and this is kind of out there thesis, but what if it's all just a play because they want to acquire the COQ token because they know that it's a team that's, you know, very legitimate and working on some cool product that's going to launch. If anyone was going to know these are non-founders of this ridiculous named coin, it probably would be the Avalanche Foundation. And that's always just a possibility. So while that's like out there and I would definitely not invest in anything based on that thesis, like at the same time, it's definitely possible. And I wouldn't be surprised even if we saw uh, some, some type of bot or something of that nature launch from some of these some of these meme coin teams in the near future. Yeah, we got a good uh, discussion on Bonk and the Bonk trading bot coming up later in the show, but that's that's a definitely a good flag. And you know, I think Bonk is kind of a a great way of how you can start as a meme coin and kind of translate transition into this like real protocol that and now like Bonk is truly uh, more of a protocol typical protocol token than a meme coin now, but it still like gets this meme token feel, which is Kind of a really interesting way, but again, we'll get into that uh, uh, later in the show. Uh, another news update we have is the Dimension airdrop. Matt, I'm going to throw this one over to you to kind of walk us through what Dimension is and uh, a little bit about their airdrop. So I'm definitely not an expert in Dimension, but I did spend a little bit of time reading about it today. Basically, it's a settlement layer where you can go easily launch a roll app or an application-specific roll-up. So the idea here is that you'd use a different layer for data availability. So you go use slash GR, Ethereum, or wherever you align, slash get the best costs or whatever as your data availability layer, and you'd use Dimension for settlement. Um, Dimension has IBC built into it, so these roll apps can communicate with each other in a you know trust-minimized nature, at least compared to other rollups today. So this allows for like easy bridging, um, you know, the ability to do cross-chain swaps more more simply and things of that nature. So the IBC aspect of it's pretty cool. Dimension also has like a liquidity layer, so if you're going to go do swaps between these roll apps, it actually occurs on uh, you know the Dimension L1. Other than that, you know, I'm not super well versed in what's going on in Dimension or its intricacies. I do know the token is supposed to have value as like if you create a roll app, you have to bond the token in order to uh, sequence your roll app. I believe that if you want to be in the liquidity layer on L1, you have to pair your token with Dimension kind of in like a Thorchain rune type model. Uh, but like I said, definitely not an expert. They gave the token out to a ton of wallets. I think it was in the uh, something like a million wallets received this airdrop. So it's definitely one of the biggest airdrops, uh, you know, by number of wallets that received it that I've ever heard about. For reference, Arbitrum was about 600,000 wallets. Uh, so very large number of wallets received it. Likely it won't be a huge airdrop, but they gave it to tons of different networks. So if you were a rollup user, use Ethereum rollups. If you've used Wormhole to bridge, if you hold a Mad Lad on Solana, 
Um, if you're staking Celestia, just to name a few of the users who they gave these tokens to. One interesting thing about this type of airdrop is you could potentially see how it would lead to bringing a ton of different communities that are mostly, uh, you know, isolated and not, not, uh, not a ton of layover between, for instance, like the people out transacting on Solana every day and the ones doing it on Arbitrum. So being able to, if they are able to get both of those communities and user bases interested in Dimension, claiming their tokens and messing around over with the rollups built on top of it, there is a chance that it could see a lot of interest uh, from a lot of different markets within the greater crypto market. I think it's a cool and interesting project, but that said, I'm not speculating that, you know, the airdrops are going to be worth a ton of money. I would, wouldn't be surprised if it ended up even being in like the 50 to hundred dollar range. I could see it being a bit more for sure. Uh, depending what you were doing, I think you got between 500 and 1500 DYM tokens, like depending on which activities you qualified for. Uh, but yeah, like that's kind of how I saw the dimension play out. I'm excited to read more about it and get a better understanding of it soon. I find the, uh, distribution very interesting and you you highlighted this that they're really trying to pull a bunch of communities together we've seen this trend kind of continue um most recently i think of pith that also did this right they had a large audience of uh different protocols users of different protocols that were pith enabled so like example uh, is perpdexes across various chains uh, that were all using pith or those users actually got this this airdrop and so what that did was pull a lot of Ethereum users, just because that's where most perpdexes lived, is Ethereum or Ethereum L2s. Um, and it pulled that community over to Solana and gave them, you know, a couple thousand bucks to go play around on Solana, which is uh, this kind of this interesting method. And of course, that was like less about attracting users to Pith and, and more so ended up being like better for Solana. Um, but this is definitely a trend that I, I've seen and I think will continue. You know, with Dimension, I think it makes a bunch of sense as well. If you need to kind of bootstrap this ecosystem, uh, of not only builders, but users that kind of need to act as a settlement layer. Like you need value on your chain for that to be useful. Um, so it's definitely interesting to see this. Uh, I mean, I, I know we talk about this a bunch, but uh, the the TS stakers getting it. This is kind of the the theory is this is the first of many. So maybe we'll see a continued trend for it for that department. My kind of only takeaway from this was that like, if I've understood correctly, the amount per wallets um, people have gotten are quite small. But then again, it was also super easy to qualify uh, to get an airdrop. So I've seen some takes on Twitter, for example, of people like saying that it would have been pretty easy to like cyber this um, airdrop because all you kind of had to do is uh, just this one specific task of which there were many and the tasks weren't that like hard to um, accomplish. So there might be a lot of like airdrops going to these butters. I think takeaway there though, is if you, you know, if you put yourself in the shoes of the protocol, like why would you make that decision? Cyber detections are like super challenging to do, right? But there are a lot of examples of how to like cast at least a wide enough net to to mitigate some of it. But if you're still going that route of, so assume that like, you know they knew they'd get some bots doing this, uh, or, or I should say they'd reward some bots with this methodology and they still pursued it, the question becomes why? Like, why is that a good idea? And if you wanna give a little value to a lot of people, to me, that tells me that you don't necessarily need rich users, but you need users, right? You, even giving 50 bucks to somebody, that will still bring them to your chain. Um, and again, based on their goal to be this settlement layer, this form of value you want a bunch of people with a bunch of money so then roll apps are more incentivized to launch there because you have all of these rich users or not necessarily rich but you have all of these users right you have 
this interaction going on on chain. You know, I think that's that's like why ETH is such this exciting settlement layer. Why you see things like Eclipse um, that is going to use Celestia DA, which is much cheaper and much better to create a, a scalable chain, but still use your settlement and put your bridge contract on Ethereum. Uh, it's because they have this huge user base and this huge liquidity source, right? So uh, I kind of get why that makes sense for Dimension. Yeah, I get your point, but um, I got a bit or push a bit back on that because like, right, if you have uh, some huge botting networks that are going to like accrue most of the, or maybe not most of the value, but like huge amounts of value from these airdrops. Meanwhile, most of the basic people or like regular users are just getting a small pie of it. It's going to be like kind of a, or create an unfair structure to the airdrop and then that might backfire for you in the future if like things come out that oh the like tokens were airdropped most to the like butters or whatever it does decentralize the network pretty well so we actually saw somewhat similar with arbitrum as far as not you know doing a super intensive civil protection in their airdrop they actually rewarded quite a few airdroppers with quite a bit of arb or sorry civil farmers with quite a bit of arb arb um and one thing that it did achieve for arbitrum dow was like pretty solid decentralization in the network as far as having a lot of community participants with you know delegations or receiving and at the end of the day it ends up with a lot of tokens being distributed to a lot of wallets um you doubt the bot farmers are going to go uh keep their tokens so at the end of the day you have a lot of wallets holding this token likely in the near future so that does aid in decentralization and building off dan's point about working with celestia like i think that's something we should probably hit on which is Celestia is this huge narrative, really cool data availability layer, but it doesn't enable settlement, which Dimension does. So even though like I'd never really done too much research in Dimension, I just heard it in passing. I do think that that particularly interests me how it pairs with Celestia, how you use Dimension for for uh, settlement and you use uh, Celestia for data availability. And that pairing kind of works pretty well. And I could see it even maybe like continuing a narrative in the future, though that's not my base case. Like I definitely wouldn't be surprised if that happened. All right, Zero X Research listeners, we're calling on you to join us for the premier institutional crypto conference in Europe's crypto capital, London, this March 2024. You're going to get to hear exclusive insights from industry trailblazers on things like leveraging DeFi protocols for institutional yield, tokenizing real world assets with instant settlement, navigating the evolving global regulatory landscape, integrating digital assets into banking and payments, or crafting institutional investment mandates with digital assets as the key focus. We'll also be featuring some big keynote speakers, including Melvin Dang, the CEO at QCP Capital, Mark Yusko, the CEO and managing partner of Morgan Creek Capital, and Stani Kluchin, the founder and CEO of Ave Companies. This is not an event you're going to want to miss. Seats are limited, so be sure to register today by hitting the link in the description and using promo code 0x20 to save 20% on your tickets. See you in London, the land of tasty pastries, and be sure to hit up Dan and I for a beer. Speaking of Celestia, though, I guess this is kind of digressing away from Dimension, but everybody keeps talking about Celestia underneath. How many tweets have you seen that's, oh, this is using Celestia. I'm using Celestia for my new roll-up. Celestia underneath has become this like mini Twitter narrative. Uh, While I'm running the data on Celestia right now, there are three uh, there, I'll pull this up uh, later in the show, but there are three namespaces using Celestia. So namespaces are basically like if I was a roll-up and posting my data to Celestia, I would have my own namespace that was like Daniel's roll-up. And this is where I put all my data uh, so I can easily go find my roll-ups data. And this, nobody's using it yet. So I, like, I don't know why this is. I don't think this is a red flag by any means. I just find it interesting that we keep seeing 
I'm using Celestia, I'm using Celestia, and yet nobody's actually using Celestia. They're all using Celestia testnet because they're still working on getting this implementation live. I don't know if there are hiccups to getting these things live. My gut tells me no, that's not the case. And it's just like spinning up this new, a new chain is not like a overnight task really. Uh, and so we just haven't seen those come on li come live yet. So I'm, I'm, if I don't see anything in Q1, I'm probably going to be in that mode of starting to get nervous. Of course, Brick's laughing at me because he's probably thinking it just doesn't matter. It's going to be the narrative trade anyways. But it is interesting to see that there are literally only three namespaces being used. Uh, and I don't know what they are. So you can name your, your namespace anything like Daniel's rollup or just a, a hex string of numbers and letters. And of course, the three that are being used are just three strings of numbers like 080808 or one of them I think is 2410. Uh, and then the third one is like just random string of numbers. So no idea what these are. And my guess is it would be somebody testing something, but it's just too hard to say. Uh, kind of a question for you. Do you happen to know what the namespace was that pumped the blob data um, posted on Celestion? Was it December 17th? It was called something like Astro. Sorry if I'm throwing a hard question at you right now, but I was just wondering if you. Yeah, so that was Astroglyph, which is which is correct. It was. Uh, I'm trying to share screen here, uh, but Astroglyph is <laughs> none other than an inscriptions protocol. So really, no surprise why that was driving the numbers here. But uh, all right, so I got this up, cooked up a quick dashboard just to show uh, Blockworks Research subscribers what exactly is going on on Celestia. So we like to use these spotlight dashboards to capture uh, recent trends or, or move market moving narratives. Um, and so right now, this is what we're looking at. So if we use, uh, we refresh this at the end of every day. So we get the full uh, picture of the latest data once a completed day has happened. And you'll see these are the three namespaces I was talking about. So it's just like a random string of numbers. Uh, so it's a little hard to kind of say what exactly these things are. Uh, but if you see at the top of this leaderboard we have, yeah, Astroglyph posted a shit ton of data uh, on December 21st, about 278 megabytes, uh, which is far more than we've seen basically in total by anybody. Um, so inscriptions is the, is the long answer there. And then, I mean, here you can see that a couple of days we've had more than three namespaces, but for the most part, uh, you're getting between three and six namespaces per day. And on the namespaces front, uh, 0x Osprey on Twitter, I was chatting with him and he had a really, really interesting take on namespaces. So the best way to describe these, I think, is like Celestia's blob space as like all of Reddit. And within Reddit, you know, you can interact with different users uh, by going to a subreddit. So like, uh, reddit.com slash Daniel's Reddit, right? Like then you can get to just my page and you can, I can post data to just my page. Brick, you can post data to just my page or I can like make a private page where only I can post data to. And that's a, a great way to think about namespaces is subreddits. Uh, so for example here, if I go on this leaderboard, there is uh, a namespace called memes and I, only uh, one blob has been posted to it. And it's like this animation of the Rick Roll song. Um, so I, you could see a protocol being built on Celestian namespaces that is like based around this subreddit idea where you can like all of the data gets posted to Celestia. Of course, it's more of a data avail availability source than a storage source, but like this website could definitely run uh, an archival node in this case. Uh, so it's really interesting to think about exactly just like this idea of like Celestian namespaces being subreddits. I don't know. You can see a cool protocol being built, built on top of it for sure. I think one thing that 
just came to my mind about Dimension is that obviously there's like a lot of roll-up as a service providers that have spun up in the past year. I think the most popular ones are probably Conduit, um, Outlayer, and now Dimension. One thing I've always thought about is what is the competitive advantage or the sustainable competitive advantage of these roll-up as a service? And how do they establish like a moat over time, you know, because everyone can like put OP stack in a check mark. Everyone can put like Celestia DA, everyone can support like Arbitrum Orbit and every roll-up as a service provider is going to provide that. And it's hard to see the value accrual for them. Whereas Dimension has come in here with like a slightly alternative model, right? They have like the Dimension Hub, their own DA network and sort of their own settlement layer. And perhaps that's how they're thinking about value accrual for roll-up as a service. Whereas for someone like Conduit, right? If you're just helping people launch OP stack roll-ups, it's hard to see the value accrual for them, right? Because if there's some like fancy like shared sequencer, some like shared infra, like chances are you can't share that much infra. You need like a RPC for each individual roll-up. And sure, you may make some margins there. Um, but a shared sequencer, like that's not going to be a you thing. That's going to be like an espresso OP super chain thing, right? And so perhaps there's something here to be said for Dimension and the Dimension Hub where they're going to build their own AMM on the L1. Yeah. And then like, for, I don't know, I don't want to get too deep into the weeds on this one, but like the idea of sovereign rollups comes to my mind here where you kind of don't need the settlement layer. Um, so I think there's just so much iteration left in, in an experimentation left in the... Um, in this roll app space, we, again, we really haven't seen this world of a million chains and how that's going to play out. So still a lot to come is kind of where my head's at with this one. But if we move on to another news segment this week, Maker is back in, uh, is back in the talk of the town, really. It's, it's producing real revenues and people are starting to wake up to it. So Brick, can you walk us through the latest and greatest with Maker now? Yeah, for sure. I mean, I've been looking at the assets since probably beginning of September or something like that. And I've been feeling like, I don't know, um, yelling into a, an empty void or whatever, because like the market just doesn't seem to like catch on to this narrative. But now suddenly like a few big names within the maker community posted uh, kind of few small threads about the protocol and suddenly like the market just jumps on it. And I think today, the token is up around 15% or something like that. Um, and kind of the main points that people are now tr uh, starting to realize is that like Maker is a real revenue generating machine, so to say. Um, so in the bear market, they've done, or the protocol has done pretty well because of their large RWA holdings or more specifically uh, their T-bill holdings. Um, and now when interest rates kind of are starting to revert, but then uh, crypto is coming back. So more and more people are starting to take out die loans or like basically giving collateral back into Maker and then uh, minting die out, which of course accrues a revenue to or a fee to a Maker. So then that part starts to grow while T-bills kind of might, or T-bill revenue um, might start decreasing. So. Uh, in an ideal scenario where uh, the bull market and the interest rates are um, moving like in negative directions or in different directions, um, the protocol can create pretty like stable and large revenues. Um, and then off top, on top of that, end game is, of course, so end game is basically makers like 
five-phased um, plan to change the protocol to its final phase, which is expected to happen over like, I don't know, five years. Um, and it has been kind of delayed because of, I guess, a lot of stuff, but mainly I think some governance frictions and some devs leaving and things like that anyway. Um, so now people are also realizing that as part of end game or the uh, newest changes into end game, the maker um, like native token will be, you will be able to swap it uh, at a rate of one to 24K if the newest proposal passes, um, which means that the token price pretty much just goes down or like the FDV stays the same and the market cap stays the same, but um, the price of the token just goes down. And then now a narrative is starting to form that, okay, new and cheap token, uh, cheap in quotation marks, <laughs> because like the price doesn't really matter here. Um, will like get a lot of more attention. Um, and then also another narrative that I've kind of been seeing today on Twitter is that like being middle curve is the new narrative or that's the new meme. Like, you don't want to go left curve. You don't want to go right curve. You want to be cool and do this middle curve RWA um, investments. And actually, yeah, the protocol plays pretty nicely into that narrative. And I guess a lot of research houses and funds have um, predicted that uh, this year will be the year of the, or a large narrative this year, year will be RWA. So plays into that as well. And then, of course, as part of end game, uh, Maker will create these sub DAOs, um, and one of those being Spark DAO, um, which is basically the DAO for the lending platform Spark Protocol, which is now kind of under Maker. Um, and Spark has been doing super, or Spark Protocol has been doing super well recently. So um, the amount borrowed has uh, increased from like around 200 million. Uh, at the beginning of October to now being a bit over 5 billion. So a 5x increase in a pretty short amount of time. And um, if you look at governance proposals or what people are talking about in the forums, it's quite clear that Maker is trying to push more and more um, spark into the uh, spotlight and get more users through that. Although um should be noted that the protocol doesn't really accrue that much revenue through the platform right now, but maybe that will uh, change in the future. And it's been super cool to see that like someone else or kind of, although Maker is an OG project, but still like a new protocol is able to take market share away from Aave um, on Ethereum. And then the last point being that um, Maker this year or last year initiated um, again, or like reinitiated its value accrual mechanism for the native token where instead of now burning um, maker with fees or like profits, the protocol instead acquires maker and then pairs that with DAI into a Uniswap pool. Uh, so increasing protocol owned liquidity and with that uh, should make trading easier or on-chain trading of the native token easier. Um, and yeah, those are basically the large narratives that people have finally started catching on and um, we'll see how long this kind of first wave lasts and how much people um, or how much interest that token can accumulate now. But yeah, any thoughts from you guys? 
it's absolutely hilarious that you bring up all these like fundamental, you know, innovations and value propositions. For instance, the inverse correlation between uh, the T-bill rates and the potential supply of dye, and you know, the growth of Spark protocol, the growth of the protocol and liquidity or POL. And the only thing that hits me is unit bias. They're going to trade one maker, which is currently trading at you know four figures into twenty traded twenty divided by twenty four thousand, and all of a sudden it's going to be quote unquote cheap. Obviously, to all, you know to anyone out there, like it doesn't actually change the FTV or the value of this of this protocol, and it should have no implication. But as we know, unit bias is a real thing in crypto, and that uh, that makes me hella bullish MKR. So that's really funny. I really didn't think that unit bias was real. I like, it's just so stupid that I, I was like, all right, I, I that just, I, I had too much faith in the average person. And then one of my sort of distant friends, not like not a close friend by any means, just random text out of the day. Out of nowhere, he just texts me like, Hey, like, what do you think about this Casper protocol? It's like, okay, here we go again. Another one of these like YouTube scam coins. Um, so like talk him off the ledge and he's like, I don't know, man, it just looks so cheap. It was like a couple cents or I don't, I don't even remember what I was trading at, but it was like, he was like relative to, I think he was talking about Solana was his other choice because he was between. And he mentioned it was cheap because of the price and the price was like a fraction of a cent. And I was like, wow, like the average people really do think like this, that I just, I don't get it. I don't get, I just, it's hard for me to wrap my mind around, but that shit is real. So unfortunately that matters, which is a super interesting takeaway. Uh, but Brick, you mentioned another thing I thought that was interesting about like being in the middle curve might be a good thing. Um, and I kind of tend to agree with you. I think during a bear market, you want to lean middle left in a lot of ways because or sorry, in a bull market. Uh, but in a bear market, like that's when you want to take your big like right curve contrarian bet that's like this token's deeply on sale uh, and it will be the one to outperform. But as the market starts to come back alive and attention starts to refocus around narratives and bounce from one one narrative to the other, like that's when you kind of want to be just barely front running the masses and, and then just like fall, copy trading the masses because that's where the capital is flowing. So I kind of see that thesis making a lot of sense about staying in the middle curve uh, kind of during one of the more hot market periods. Yeah, definitely. And maybe another takeaway from this all is that like how large the impact of crypto Twitter still is. Like people started posting about this maybe three hours ago and then maybe an hour and a half ago the token starts pumping. Like everyone's so quick to hop on this narrative and it's usually like some combination of a few accounts that get um, kind of noticed by the masses and then people start buying into these tokens and suddenly you have like a large narrative going on. So I guess it's just not about like finding the right drivers and being like super diligent with what you're buying into and kind of being in the, or at the middle of the curve, but also being able to predict what's going to become popular or what, other people will start looking at. I think Maker also benefits from sort of like being one of the only large cap RWA protocols or in terms of like the token and their traction. Like if you think about all of the other RWA protocols, either not a lot of them have a token, have value accrual or their protocol is at like a super small, like sub 150 million TVL. And so if you're thinking of RWAs, right, you're thinking like, okay, 
MakerDAO is probably the one I want to buy. You're probably not going to go out there and buy uh, a Centrifuge, Goldfinch. You're probably not going to go buy um, uh, on-chain like Treasury Issuer if they even have tokens. And so MakerDAO is really like the only token that comes to mind for a lot of people. This is in comparison to something like AI and decentralized compute, right? If you're like thinking of like longing decentralized compute today, you're like, okay, you look at Akash, you look at like Render, you get like IONET, which is having a token come out in Q1. And you're like, all of these stats look kind of similar. They all have like maybe like a few thousand or like 10,000 GPUs. I'm not really sure what to long. But for RWAs, it's really just makers, like the only large one or like significant player that comes to mind. Yeah, that's a good take. And and also Spark Protocol has just absolutely crushed. And and Brick, you hit on this. I just want to double double down on that because I think they launched, let's call it six months ago. And they already have over 850 million in borrows outstanding. And it's really, really huge to see that. And and you kind of pointed out that it has kind of been this this quick riser up the the lending leading board already in you know the third or fourth position behind like Ave and Compound, the two giants that have been around a, a full DeFi cycle. Um, whereas again, this protocol is six months old and has already been able to to just absolutely crush it. I think a lot of that I don't I don't know the numbers, but I'm I'm curious like what still resides in some of those more OG like Oasis vaults because my assumption is a lot of that just migrated like from Oasis into uh spark but nonetheless i think that really highlights the success that they're having highlights how makers kind of diversified itself into being bull and bear market resistant and what i mean by that is in a bear market rwas crush you know that's t-bills in in a bear market that's where you want to go flight to safety um and for maker that means revenue throughout a bear and then they've got a great lending protocol um built around the ave v3 tech and forked from that uh, and being iterated on by Sam McPherson and the team to still create these crypto backed loans that people want in the heat of a bull market. So they kind of have both ends of the spectrum. And yeah, super, I mean, it's just really a complete DeFi protocol uh, that is starting to look more and more like, like a real company that, that has a good future ahead of it. It's, it's interesting to see that uh, from a DeFi protocol, not something we're totally used to. I loved Ren's point too about like die and maker versus or spark protocol die and maker versus, you know, on-chain real world asset protocols, because it's something that I haven't understood so much. You know, there's a lot of people calling for these on-chain RWA protocols to have like the narrative of the year in 2024 as institutional investors want to hold treasuries on chain. And I just don't really see it. I see a lot of, you know, a lot of appetite for stablecoin creation. I see a lot of appetite for maker and die, but I don't see institutions paying a 25 basis point fee to hold the real world assets on chain versus in a you know brokerage firm. So like that narrative, you know, hasn't clicked for me. I could be wrong, but for me, it's just like, if I wanted real world asset exposure, I'd be getting it here as well. And touching like a little further on this uh, point you were brought up earlier, Dan, which is like in a bull market, you kind of want to maybe use, you want to tend away from the right mid curve a little bit and a little bit further towards left. It's something that I call like IQ off risk on. It's like, this is ridiculous. And I, I hate that I'm even saying this, but it's something I've learned over being in crypto for a very long time, which is even though you can say in a very intellectual, sophisticated and completely true manner that things like the number of daily active users on a high throughput, low cost blockchain, the total volume on a, on an asset that you can trade with zero fees, the order book depth in an industry which has no regulatory jurisdiction that says you can't be, you know, spoofing the order book like these things. Or how about GitHub commits like things like GitHub commits where you say there's tons of different developers committing to GitHub when, you know, it could just be like 
a bot farm that's spinning up new githubs and making a commit that changes a space in the documentation or something. It's like for the longest time, I just thought these things were completely irrelevant and baseless and shouldn't have any effect on value. And like they shouldn't, but they do. And it's like, you know, at the end of the day, sometimes it makes sense to, uh, if, if for a trade, not for an investment, but sometimes it makes sense to like turn off the, the IQ a little bit and just go with the flow and, uh, and, and focus on that left curve mindset. So you're telling me I should long scroll because they have 1.1 million developers on their blockchain. Thank you. They have more developers than users in this industry. It's quite impressive. That chart on Blockworks Research is crazy. It shows the number of unique address addresses that have deployed a contract on each L2 and scrolls just like, you know, I don't know the exact number, like 10 times or 20 times higher than every other L2. And <clears throat> one could predict that it's likely people that think they'll get an airdrop for that. Uh, oh, it's ZK Sync. It's not even scroll. Sorry yeah. about that. It's ZK Sync, but it's hilarious. You know, at the end of the day, it's uh, same shit. funny industry. It's kind of sad that your previous statement is true, though, Matt. Like, you have to turn off your brain to uh, follow the trends, which is very telling about who's pushing the trends. But nonetheless, you uh, you mentioned some bullshit metrics. I think that's a good segue into our hot seat, Cool Throne. So I'm actually putting active addresses in the hot seat this week because uh, Brick asked, asked me a question earlier today, and he said, you know, why does Polygon have about 80,000 uh, new active addresses a day and new active addresses as defined by the first time an address is using the blockchain uh, is occurring within this period. So he's looking at a daily time frame. Um, so there's about 80,000 addresses that were had in their first transaction ever was, it was again in this sp specific day. Uh, and so just as a recap, about 80,000 new addresses per day on Polygon right now. Uh, and so I was like, okay, Given that there's not a lot of activity on Polygon, that's a bit surprising. And so first reaction, I was like, all right, let me go double check the code. Like the you know, bugs are possible. So went went through and did that. Of course, it looks good. And so I started poking through some of the addresses that had their first transaction in today, like today. Of course, the literally the first one I pull uh, is I flip through the transactions and it's literally 2000 Matic tokens being sent from at one address to a new address, 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 to, a new address, to like, it's just this chain of, of just spamming new addresses. Uh, so I don't know who spun this up. I don't know what its intention is, but at the end of the day, it is pushing new addresses into the, the, uh, into the active address count. Um, and so again, going back to zero X Osprey, I, I, he's the theme of this episode, it appears, uh, you know, he's very vocal on Twitter about active addresses being a bullshit metric. And he was kind of the first person to put me onto this. And I very much so moved to this corner. And I think Mert's pretty loud about this on Solana too, which is good to see because cheaper blockchains are easier to spoof the active addresses. If you wanted to send one transfer from uh, about 480,000 active addresses, which is the total addresses. So active or new and existing addresses on Polygon today is about 480,000. That would cost 650 bucks just to send one transfer from 480,000 wallets, right? And you obviously space them out through the day, avoid state contention, yada, yada. That's uh, pretty telling that, you know, what can be spoofed in this industry will be. And so you need to, you can't just look at a transaction count that got shot up like a, 
completely ruined a lot of charts to be quite honest for uh, Arbitrum, Avalanche, even Solana got, they all got hit pretty hard by inscriptions. Uh, and so like, you can't just be like, Oh, look how great my blockchain is today because I have this huge spike in, in transaction count or, Oh wow, look at this. We have 80,000 new active addresses today. It's like we have 80,000 new users coming online. Like a lot of the time I see people talk about active addresses and then use the word user. Uh, and to me, when you say user, you're reflecting like a human behind the address. And that's like, I really like to stay away from saying active addresses equal users. Um, because like, if you think about like a, a web two comparison, like a social media site probably doesn't say that their active addresses or their total users are like their number of email addresses. And that's kind of more akin to an, uh, a, crypto address you know you, you really want to try to somehow do something like if you say user to me when you're talking about addresses that means you've done some sort of manipulation to that number to remove like bots uh, and i don't think that ever really happens so i think michael silbert from the optimism team has done some cool work on trying to uh, pull out bots at bot addresses um but i don't know i think that's something we need to work towards as an industry is, is staying away from like highlighting one metric that's easily manipulatable uh, and saying, oh, wow, look at this. Like we have the best blockchain in the world because of this one stat on this one day. Like we need to see trends through time uh, of a series of metrics that are preferably hard to manipulate. That's the, so I'm putting shitty metrics in the hot seat this week. Yeah, I got to say there's a lot of them, especially in an unregulated industry. It's like you don't even I wouldn't even assume that it's the team. You know, like I wouldn't go assume that that whatever no, yeah, yeah. good call i'm not i'm not accusing anybody here that it's just like this shit happens like this could be some dedicated super fan who's like polygon is my fucking bag and i'm gonna make it look like people use this chain like it, it could be literally anybody it, there could be some weird purpose to this too that i don't know i don't want to insinuate anything here again i looked at this for 10 minutes with brick earlier uh but it, it, it's just proof that the stat itself is manipulatable it's tough, man. It's tough to find non-manipulatable metrics, like even around price data, like volume and depth, like I mentioned earlier, you know, it's, it's easily spoofed, even market makers in crypto. And this is something that's like not really talked about and maybe should continue to not really be talked about, but it's like, you can buy an asset when the, when, you know, it's one, you buy an asset when the price impact is one standard deviation below average and you sell it when it's one higher. And, you know, the team funds you with a bunch of tokens and dollars to start off this market quote unquote market making endeavor. It's like, uh, I don't know, our, our industry has a lot of interesting things of that nature where uh, you just definitely got to be careful and aware. And if, if not, you, uh, you should probably stay out of investing in things outside of, you know, the top two crypto tokens. Yeah, that you bring up Dex trading. It's a great one. Two things come to mind. One is Canto. If you remember the peak of the Canto craze, they have uh, zero fee Dex swaps because the Dex was like core to the protocol itself, if I remember correctly. Uh, and so because of this, like the total Dex volume on Canto is like flipping major chains. And they're, you know, obviously it's getting touted on Twitter for being the second coming of Jesus chain. And the reality was like, it was just free swap. So you saw a shit ton of wash trading. Uh, the second one that comes to mind is I believe it was Dodo, uh, but Dodo had like a single pool that was either like zero swap fee or 0.01% or some very, very small fee. And so this one pool was doing insane volume. And then the rest of their protocol was like relatively quiet. Uh, but because this one pool was doing so much volume and it was likely mostly wash volume, uh, you know, the Dodo is like always in the top tier, the top, say, five or ten uh, DEXs when you're like filtering on, say, DeFi Llama or some other tool. Uh, and so it's like what can be manipulated will be. And you really need to factor that into your decision making process when you're judging the quality of an asset or a protocol.
maybe that's a good jumping point for another hot seat or cool throne. Ren, I'll toss things over to you. Yeah, uh, I got two cool thrones this week, actually. The first is Bonkbot. So obviously as a starting point, I do think Telegram uh, Telegram trading bots do really well. Uh, this cycle, I mean, like everything, all of the degenerates you saw last cycle, and you just make that UX, UI, UX, like 10 times easier. That's basically what Telegram trading bots are. And I think the game has got a lot, a lot more sophisticated, especially in terms of the speed advantage you need to have. And Telegram trading bots are like the perfect solution to that. Sure, there are definitely some like security concerns around them having a private keys. We've seen some exploits. But I want to talk about Bonkbot for a second. So Bonkbot is a Telegram trading bot on Solana with the Bonk brand, but if I'm not wrong, it has a separate development team. Um, they have a lifetime volume of 770 million and nearly 100k cumulative users. It's done some really, really impressive numbers, probably partially on the back of Bonk Miss, which was this 12 day sort of like airdrop thing that Bonk was running, um, where you basically got to try out a lot of different integrations that use Bonk or Bonk's own products. They had an average volume per user of 8,200. And they've generated nine million in lifetime fees. Um, I really shouldn't be doing this, but their highest daily fee was six hundred and seventy-eight thousand. And if you annualize that, that's two hundred and eighty million. I know some people are gonna come after me for that. I know we're have some decent fee. Oh, but I don't know. I I always have like a fun time extrapolating and analyzing things. I did the same thing for like Gito's validator tips. If you annualize like the highest day of like validator tips on Gito is like some crazy number and it could potentially support like whatever valuation Gito is at right now um but 280 million I think whatever like activity you saw right now right in terms of like 768,000 in one day it's very possible to see that level of activity every day in a bull market if you knew how things crazy were last cycle right so that's kind of why I don't think it's the worst thing to analyze these numbers sometimes. Sure, they won't last forever, but they'll last for a a certain period of time and perhaps will be even higher. Um, But it's a 1% fee on all of the trades. 100% of the fees are used to uh, buy back. Um, It goes to different places. 10% of it is burned. uh, 10% of it goes to the DAO. 30% of it goes to like the development teams. Um, But yeah, it's, it's a seriously impressive amount of volume, right? If... You told me that Bonkbot has surpassed Unibot in lifetime value. I would not have guessed that, to be honest, but it has. Unibot's around 500 million, Bonkbot's at 700 million, and number two, Banana Guns at 900 million. So, you know, give it a few more weeks and it will probably become number two in cumulative um, transaction volume. And I think there's a few things to take note of here. The first is obviously Solana user activity is on a tear. Degen activity on the chain has picked up very, very significantly. So the second thing is, I think these Telegram trading bot wars are going to heat up significantly. Like, it's been relatively okay so far, and the competition has been mostly limited to like individual chains. But Unibot, for example, just announced that they're going to move to Solana uh, one week ago, and they've just launched their Solana bot. And Unibot, has also launched a trading terminal, I want to say a few months ago, called Unibot X, which I just checked it out. It looks relatively professional. And I think 
cumulatively, these protocols are probably going to make a ridiculous amount of money next cycle. I, I wouldn't be surprised if they make like one billion in total. Yeah, the stats on Bonkbot are, are honestly pretty crazy. Um, you know, you shouted out a lot of great ones, but uh, you also mentioned Bonkmas. I think this started around the 20, or uh, excuse me, December 15th or 16th. And you really see this kind of being a key point in the, the rise and recent adoption uh, of Bonkbot. But, you know, they seem to be leveling off somewhere in the neighborhood of about 24-ish, 25,000 users per day, which is a pretty meaningful number. And yes, this was an incentive program, so you don't want to just like stare directly at these incentivized values and use these for your future assumptions. But if, let's say that this, you know, this 24, 25,000 active user, daily active user number is where Bonkbot levels off around, I would call that a damn successful uh incentivization program you know you run a 10 10 15 i think it was what 10 days 10 day incentive uh incentive program and all of a sudden you have twenty thousand active users that's that's a success and looking at the stats it's crazy i mean they were doing some pretty meaningful fee revenue right this is they were averaging somewhere between like 500 and 200 and, and 700,000 um in fee revenue per day which of course 10 percent of that is burned and returned to bond holders it's pretty interesting because this thing obviously got advertised as a meme coin, but again, it's like it's really looking more and more like a traditional protocol token, and there's a team behind the token developing it and pushing it forward. And if you look at its performance relative to other bots, I think there's a really interesting takeaway where, you know, yes, Bonkmas en ended and usage dropped off a bit, um, but that also kind of perfect Bonkmas kind of like perfectly overlapped this peak moment of shitcoining on Solana. And the two are probably related, right? If more people are using a Telegram trading bot, then there's more incentive to go shitcoin on Solana. Um, but if you look at the stats, it's like insane market dominance just straight out of the gates. So this huge pink piece here for the viewers rather than the listeners uh, is the number of users per Telegram bot. Uh, and if you look at their user dominance, they you know, came online in mid-November at about 5%, and currently they've got about 68% of the total trading bot user dominance, which is absolutely madness. And if you go strictly on volume, it's not like their users are all trading, you know, one, $1. They're all, they're still in about 60 to 70% of total volume dominance for uh, Telegram trading bots as well. So these are great dashboards by Whale Hunter. Uh, definitely go check these out on Dune. I think that the trading bot volume dominance is going to be my indicator for frothy points in crypto. Um, I think we have this weird thing in this industry where we try to find, or we call everything a top signal. Um, and what, you, what top signals you've seen in the past, you tend to hold on to and carry forward with you. So things like, you know, institutions buying crypto or famous people talking about crypto, like, oh, top signal, top signal. And there's a million different examples of, of this. So I'm curious if you guys have any good ones. Uh, but for me, I think you need to adapt these to the current market conditions. Uh, and Telegram trading bots didn't exist until a few months ago. So for me, this is definitely a top signal or a local top signal is when, you know, when volume jumps from 40 million to 80 million, yeah, it might be, things might be getting frothy and it might be time to cool off. I, I'm really intrigued to, to see how this new metric kind of plays out over the next couple of months. I think if I had to choose like a top signal related to telegram trading bots, it would probably be like 
volume comparisons between like centralized exchanges and Telegram trading bots. Like if we ever reach a point where Telegram trading bots was 50% of like sex spot trading volume, that's probably a sign of like, you should probably sell. If it gets to like 100%, then 100% like just sell everything at that point. <laughs> if it ever overtakes, oh my God, yeah, hopefully everyone's rich by that point. Um, I, I do kind of agree with like the top signal point, especially I think last cycle was slightly different in that it was like the first cycle that retail got exposed to the masses. I'm sure we see like a lot of the same things play out but also this cycle you know there's like the whole like quote-unquote institutional thing with the bitcoin etf uh and i think there's just like too many top signals to to keep track of i don't think it's very prudent to like try to like have a checklist of like 10 top signals and then like if like seven of them like ever hit like then sell everything that's that's too complicated for me my top signal is when a Blockworks research analyst sends a Zillow for more than five million, and I'm selling everything. I'm also very fortunate to have the best bottom signal of all time when we're about to start a bull run, which is my parents telling me that I should switch careers. And at that point, I just you know net worth into crypto. It's time to go heavy. You know, you go to a family dinner and people are like, ah, oh, so you're buying the you're you're buying the beers, right? And yeah, then you sell. Another thing that comes to mind from this conversation is just that. Or I get the feeling that, or you can say that we're still so early because the best value accrual models or the best kind of business models right now in crypto are super like kind of degen related and trading related. Like there's still not a lot of, I don't know how to put it, um, things to do for kind of retail users or your maybe your mom and dad won't come on chain because like, they're able to use trading bot but once there's like a real use case then maybe these business models flip as well and like there's another vertical in which like investors start looking at for value it's like one good question i guess is and man i feel so bad i probably sound like the biggest pessimist crypto hater like i love our industry i think you know i think we're gonna truly i think it's truly technology that changes the world but our fundamentals good at this point in time for crypto like if bonk loses its meme ability slash it's you know it's soul no value this is just some 69 420 crap blah 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 blah. like let's go make fun of it on the internet <clears throat> and attempts to create fundamental value through you know buying and burning bonk from fees that the trading bots use you could make a case that that's actually bearish for the token versus you know the no fundamental value accrual um, and that's sad to say, but I definitely think that, you know, I, I could at least argue it whether or not I believe it. Hey, Doge operates a whole ass chain. That's, that's the one thing to keep in your back pocket. But unfortunately, I, I do agree with the direction you're heading. Ren, I know you said you had another hot seat cool thrown so far away. Yeah, um, obviously, we have a big day potentially coming in. I want to say eight days. I know the approval window that got put out there last month was like January 5th to January 10th. And if you haven't figured out at this point, I'm talking about the spot Bitcoin ETF. Um, we've seen a huge amount of activity in the past few weeks from all of the issuers. And it seems like everyone's getting a race or getting the race on, so to say. Um, you're starting to see some like 30 second ads come out. For example, Bitwise put out an ad, and I wouldn't be too surprised to see that basically 10x, right, in the next few months. Just to run some numbers here, 
Uh, gold ETFs have around 120 billion in AUM with an expense ratio of, for example, 60 bips. That's almost 700 million in fees per year. If you analyze that out, extrapolate, do a DCF, whatever, that's probably a shitload of money over the next 10 to 20 years, especially if Bitcoin 3Xs, 5Xs, whatever it does, right? Um, and I think one thing about ETFs is like, if you choose like an S&P index fund, right? Chances are you don't change who you buy. You buy them for either A, they have like the lowest expense ratio or B, like they track um, the underlying the best. And so over time, that customer value increases. I don't want to say exponentially, but it definitely increases, right? Either as the price of Bitcoin goes up or you become richer and you keep on putting like 5% of your paycheck into Bitcoin, right? Hopefully you make more money over your career every year. If not, you'd probably be doing something wrong. Um, but basically there's a lot of money at stake for a lot of these people. So these issues are probably going to really ramp up the marketing and ad spend over the coming months because every, I don't know, $1 million you spend today could be a hundred million in fee revenue um, over the coming decades, right? Um, and so fees have been a big point of all of these spot Bitcoin ETFs. I think the lowest one has come in at 0.39% or 39 bips by Wise Origin. And there's been a few sort of like uh, promotional tactics, so to say. For example, Galaxies, their fee is normally 59 bips. But for the first six months and the first 5 billion in assets, they are going fee-less, so zero fees, which I think is like pretty damn rare for any ETF. Like even uh, Vanguard's like VOO, their S&P like index fund slash ETF is three bips expense ratio. Um, And, you know, another thing that people should be watching for is how much these issuers are seeding their ETFs with. I think Bitwise has come in at 200 million, which is by far the highest out of all of the spot ETF issuers. The next highest one, I think, is I want to say 10 million. Looking at this uh, table from James Safart, our ETF god, uh, mm -hmm. and that's from iShares. Um, but basically, TLDR, it's hard to say who's gonna win today. Whoever wins, there's probably some quote unquote like network effects, um, and they'll probably stand to make a lot of money over the next 10, 20, 30 years. I'm just going to go ahead and give my quote there because it's you know, very similar and on the same subject, which is Jane Street, who is the market announced AP authorized participant on uh, three of the ETFs already likely to be added on a few of the ones that currently have NAs listed as their APs. For those that don't know, the authorized participant is the one who has the ability to create and redeem shares, meaning that if the price of Bitcoin trades above the price of the ETF, they have the ability to actually uh, you know, buy the ETF, redeem the Bitcoin, go sell the Bitcoin. And if the price of Bitcoin trades below uh, the price of the ETF, they can go uh, you know, buy Bitcoin and create shares. So create, redeem. Um, and Jane Street will likely be printing money when these ETFs launch. I'm imagining that the ETFs that they are the AP on will likely have lower spreads than the other ones, though obviously there's no guarantee of that. Um, and because of that, you know, at the end of the day, I think those ETFs will actually have a leg up as well. So just another factor in which ETF kind of, or which ETFs might gain a lot of uh, a lot of a lot of TVL, <laughs> and it's probably going to be ones with uh, low spreads as well. Well done, well done. Uh, yeah, it's definitely interesting for me. I think the huge talk of the town has been, is this going to be a sell the news event? 
And I think crypto natives are heavily favoring yes, which I think is fucking hilarious. I, I, I mean, if we, so for me, this all comes down to the, it, what, what the chart looks like ends up coming down to the time frame between approval and launch. Uh, so my understanding is the SEC will come out and say, assuming this is approved, you know, we could get a, a right hook from Gary Gensler and, and friends here and just deny it. But uh, let's assume it's approved. I, my understanding is the announcement will look something along the lines of, the, uh, you know, X, Y, and Z ETFs uh, have been approved for trading on, you know, this day. And that day will be likely the Bloomberg fellows are, are honestly where I get 99.99% of my ETF uh, updates from. And I think that's a great, great source and would recommend you do the same. But they were saying it'll likely be measured in days, not weeks. So for example, it'll be trading, you know, just a, a few days after the announcement as opposed to weeks um, after announcement. And so because of that, I think that it'd be hilarious to see crypto natives sell off because as we've been mentioning all episode, all anyone's doing right now is chasing from narrative A to narrative B and so on down the line. Uh, and once the Bitcoin ETF launches, every crypto native is going to assume the ETF or the ETH ETF is next in line. Uh, and so I wouldn't be so shocked to see them all rot rotate to ETH. And then the inflows start. And if the inflows are what you know we would hope to see, you're getting meaningful capital, capital rotating for a long-term position into the industry. And I, I just think you're crazy to bet against that. Um, so yeah, I don't know. It'll be for me. It's it. It's the whether or not it's a sell the news event will be strictly based on the time between uh, announcement of approval and actually launched for trading. So the bear, the bears aren't, the bears aren't on like they're not. They are based in evidence. Like I saw a couple charts, you know, the gold ETF and a few other ETFs where up until announcement of approval, they, you know, rip and then announcement of approval, a nice decline followed by, you know, when trading starts, they, they resume to their price at, at uh, you know, at approval and then some, but I tend to agree with you also, like, I think crypto is different. I think Bitcoin's different. I do think we see a lot of people sell the news, but I don't think it has a material impact on price. Obviously not financial advice. I have no idea. Um, and I think that I would not be surprised if we if we only saw up only after the ETF, especially because it's the you know, it's not the popular thought. The popular thought is that it will be a sell the news event. I don't know if you saw, but Westy and I placed a little bet today. I got the we did an over under. I said four business days or less after the ETF approval uh, headline prints until ETF trading starts. And he took the over. I took the under on that. So I don't know if that's relevant information to anyone. No, so wait, do you uh do you hit if it's four days or so it's like four and a half days basically? So the four business days after. So if it on a on a Friday, if it prints on a Friday, then any day up until and including Thursday. Okay, so week. including. All right. So there you go. Uh I think I I have literally no idea. I'm completely guessing. So I'm gonna I'm gonna take your side because I want you to be right. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I just wanted to add that. I mean, like, this is probably the largest, most positive regulatory event this industry is going to see in 10 years. I mean, like, seriously, just like long, close your eyes, wake up in one year, and like, you just make it. Like, it's that simple. There's no need to like think, like, oh, is it going to be a sudden news event? Blah, blah, blah. Like, don't bother, man. <laughs> and also, I think another interesting thing to watch would be gold ETF AUM. I don't know whether this will make any sense at all, but it'll be interesting if you see like an outflow out of gold ETFs while Bitcoin like ETFs uh, increase in the AUM. Obviously, like either way, the AUM of spot Bitcoin ETFs is going to increase. 
but it'll be very interesting if we see like a decrease or a significant decrease in like the AUM of gold ETFs. Interesting take, actually. I I would guess not over the like you definitely. I don't. I'd be shocked if you saw some sudden moves. Uh, but if you come back in two years and plot those like the AUM charts of all gold ETFs and all crypto ETFs, um, or even just like normalize it for units or something, that would be very very interesting to see if there were inflows and outflows. But maybe that's a good place to leave it for this week. We, we jammed on a lot there. That was a, a really fun episode. So guys, thanks for hopping on. Uh, and to the listeners, we will see you all next week. Hey, everyone. Thanks so much for tuning into today's episode. We hope you really enjoyed it. Wanted to take one more moment to remind you guys about our upcoming 2024 Digital Asset Summit in London this March. Seats are limited, so be sure to hit the link in the description and use promo code 0x20 to save 20% off on your ticket. We'll see you in London. Be sure to hit us up if you plan on attending.